0: Welcome to Mentoring Moments. Mentoring Moments is a sub-series of the eCommerce Edge podcast. It is composed of clips taken from Jason's one-to-one and group mentorship sessions. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. It is my pleasure to welcome guest mentor Jason Somerville from GW Partners to the podcast. Welcome, Jason.
1: Thanks, man. Good to be here, Jason.
0: Yeah, look, you got a great name. So it's a it's a good start, right?
1: The Double Jason episode. they are going to get a <laughs> double is, dose is, of Jason here.
0: That's right. I, I think I've only ever had one other double Jason episode and that was with Jason from Bloomreach. And so yeah, I always love the double Jason episodes. They turn out well.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Look, Jason, it's super cool to have you on and get you on as a guest mentor today. You are the founder of GW Partners and You, as I understand it, and obviously I'll let you tell your intro and speak your piece, but you're effectively a a business consultant specializing in in retail, specializing in e-com, helping businesses effectively grow their enterprise value, be more successful, helping them find opportunities and helping them execute on them. That feels like a pretty broad ranging set of skills that you have to bring to the table.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it is a broad range. And I I collected those skills over many years. So uh, it took me a little bit to figure out all aspects of of a business and without getting into the full history. I I think it takes some time. It takes a lot of experience to get to the point where you can speak just as intelligently about finance as you can about supply chain or marketing. And 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 I think that it's not the easiest thing in the world, but I think we, we do it pretty well.
0: And what's crazy is you, this is not your first rodeo by any stretch of the imagination. Founding partner of South Coal, co-founder and managing partner Global Wired, co-founder and managing partner Provident, founder and chief investment officer, family office investments. And the one that probably sticks out to me the most in relation to what I do in relation to the podcast and, and our audience is South Coal. And basically building an e-commerce accelerator that brings strategic resources and capital, which I'd love to t- delve a little bit more into that sort of sure. two, two-pronged approach so that you can help founders ultimately get to a successful exit. And so what I guess drew you, because it is a broad range of experience, it's a broad range of opportunities to help and consult the businesses, but what draw you, it, it feels almost like e-commerce was moth to the flame kind of stuff, but why e com?
1: yeah that's a good question so i'll I'll try to give you like the short version of how i ended up there so very quickly I, i was a finance guy i started i was an investment banker right out of right out of school so i went i worked at bank of america on the investment banking team basically working with fortune 500 you know companies that's what you do when you work at bank of america it's all very large businesses and very large transactions equity debt derivatives all the above and then i found my way to a hedge fund in miami that's where kind of my career has gotten increasingly entrepreneurial as it's gone on. So I start out in the big corporate kind of investment bank, moved to a private hedge fund, $30 billion hedge fund, and then leave there and basically become an entrepreneur myself. I, I started and bought a few different businesses, grew them, exited them. And it was during that process that I came to be aware that there is, I felt like there was a lack of really high quality service to smaller companies, especially in the world of we'll call it strategic growth planning and mergers and acquisitions. So that's where I started to turn my attention to that world, just we'll call it in general. And at that point it was more of just smaller companies, let's say under $50 million of revenue, a lot of them under $15 million of revenue And what I really wanted to do is I wanted to help founders hopefully get access to information and skills and ultimately resources that a lot of times they couldn't because they were just too small for anybody to care, to to put it bluntly. That happens a lot with small uh, business owners. It's honestly part of the reason why they all have to be so scrappy and why they have to learn how to do things in alternative ways where... If you're at a big company and you want to figure something out, you just pick up the phone and you pay McKinsey or Deloitte or Accenture a bunch of money to go figure it out for you and you're good. Or you hire a Harvard MBA team and they figure it out for you. So I wanted to try to help founders as much as possible. And then this was about seven years ago. And at the time, that's 2010, obviously e-commerce was obviously at that point, even a, a big thing, but still not even as big as it is today growing. And I really just loved this idea that e-commerce online purchasing was a bit of a newer frontier. And that's what drew me in was, okay, it's, it feels like it's this fledgling thing that's got a long way to run. And I would love to maybe start to sink my teeth into that world. And so that's ultimately what drew me there. In a summary, that's what got me there six years ago.
0: Amazing journey. And I'm guessing that there's never been a time quite like the last few years for brands to actually need your help. There's a lot of, there's a lot of young-ish founders, certainly younger than, than you and I, that came into this latest recessionary period. Really, with blinders on in the sense that they'd never really experienced a recession before. They didn't necessarily acutely experience 2008. I've lived in three countries now. I've seen recessions happen in two of those countries now. I've seen them happen in the United States. Obviously, I didn't go through the Great Depression, but man, you know, I was there right in the thick of it during the dot com boom and bust. I, you know, and then there were several recessions since, and then the GFC of 2008. And then I was in New Zealand during that time. And I've seen you know, pretty deep troughs on both sides of the Pacific during that, during my my time in this space. And I think a lot of younger founders, because they don't necessarily have that scar tissue of having gone through those really difficult times and and having developed a little bit of a playbook to not only survive, but thrive during those things. I've seen a lot of founders flounder. Uh, during the last couple of years and and almost be a little bit of a deer in the headlights because they just don't know what that feels like emotionally to have to deal with that. And so I like to say it's it's easy during the, the good times. And it was really basically a boom from 2008 to 2021. That's an extended period of growth where basically if you couldn't make money as a business person during that time, you're probably not cut out for business. You probably should go work for a bank or something like that. You should probably go work for somebody else that Mm -hmm. can be successful. And I think that there was a lot of peacetime generals built up during that time. And I believe that wartime generals are like gold dust in a business. And because you and I have a bit more scar tissue, we've got a bit more gray hair, we've been through some ups and we've been through some downs. That gives us a pretty unique vantage point to help businesses when times get tough,
1: right? And And that was the same for you. Absolutely. I, I try to draw having gone through, um, when call it the first dot com bubble came to an end, was obviously very much in the thick of it for 08. And then obviously now, over these last few years, have been involved in e commerce, which saw, I would say, one of the craziest swings you're going to see when you have a pandemic and e com goes crazy. And then all of a sudden, we can go back outside again and things revert to the mean. So, yes, I think that. That's where, again, I try to be helpful. I think I totally agree. I think that's where some of that experience comes in quite handy when you're working through an environment that's either a little more contractual in terms of or contractive, like in a recessionary environment, or even just a flat environment where things are just pacing along, but there's not a whole lot of growth tailwind. So that's where you have to really execute as a business owner and really outsmart your competition. You're not going to get a lot of help from the general market. You're going to have to do a lot of the work yourself. And that's where, that's a different kind of mode for people to be in than really riding a tailwind, doing some good stuff, but a lot of the tailwind doing a lot of the work for you. It's a very different you have a very different world to operate in.
0: It is. And I think the, some of the things I'm seeing, and I'd love your thoughts on this. Some of the things I saw when the market started to really slow down in earnest in the latter 2021, I saw a lot of brands really struggling to figure out what levers they could even pull they thought they were efficient they thought they were they thought they were lean they thought they were they thought that they had good supply chains they thought that they you know had human resources dialed in versus demand they thought that they had they thought that they had an amazing point of difference versus all their major competitors they thought they thought they had their business nailed they thought they had uh, a rock solid operational core but when One of the things I saw that took the hit first when the pandemic hit and businesses started to really start to panic. And I was running an agency at that time. And so like we had virtually every single project. In fact, I think it was every single project put on hold that was active at the time the pandemic first hit in earnest. Every single brand put every project on hold. They said, we don't know what's coming. We need to batten down the hatches. We need to give ourselves more runway. And I think even down to the point where People that were peacetime generals up to that point, they didn't even realize how important something as simple as a cash buffer, operational cash buffer that could get them through, say, a six-month period of very depressed revenue. They didn't even know what that looked like. They never needed to do that before. But what I found was is that operations and logistics was a serious weak point for these brands, primarily in the way that they generally didn't dual source for a start off, they would they would single source almost everything in their catalog, and that was a major problem. Then secondarily, we found that logistically, even very strong e-commerce brands were not set up to go from say twenty percent of their omni-channel revenue to come from online, and eighty percent of their revenue, say for example, to come from a store state or other channels. And literally, it got flipped overnight to where 90% of the revenue now was coming from online or more, and they just did not have the operational or logistical capacity to all of a sudden say, okay, our supply chain, now we're going to be doing everything via e channel." channel. They just were not ready for that swing.
1: No, they weren't, and I think a lot of them, it was too late, right? I think the companies, obviously, that suffered the most during that time were the ones who were least prepared for such a shift, and the ones that were most prepared were the winners, but… What's been interesting to see in the aftermath of that, the way that a lot of attitudes have shifted now is, it's speaking purely of consumer, for example, but you can apply this, I think, in a lot of other places, is the idea that everything is omni-channel always. So essentially, you need to be good everywhere. You can't just be good in one place or another. You have to be good everywhere. And you have to really understand how your business can shift and move as let's say in this case we're talking purely about channel but as channel shifts and moves and i think that the most successful businesses right now and i think going forward are going to be those that those things all play well in harmony right it for it's like an orchestra playing a beautiful piece of music and all of those parts including of course the supply chain and logistics part have to run properly to support your entire channel strategy, but not only as it is now, but how it might shift in the future. Is it nimble? Does it build in some cases redundancies and other cases efficiencies, right? In a world where things are moving so quickly and it's just this weird cliche thing people throw around, stuff moves fast now, okay, cool. But what does that really mean? What it really means is your business may look very different in a short period of time than you ever thought possible. And that's just the deal moving forward. In this case, again, we're focused in on a channel and like what the you know, follow-on knock-on effects are and with supply chain and everything else. But that's become, I'd say, one of the big post-pandemic mindset shifts for a lot of business owners, which is obviously a good thing and is, is necessary.
0: And I think one of, the, one of the other areas that I saw, when we talk about the tech stack that your average D2C, B2C business runs, not so much in B2B because that's a whole different kettle of fish, but primarily in B2C and D2C, there's a pretty well-defined design pattern for different stages of growth in these businesses now in terms of the tech stack that they will run. They might start out. As a startup, and they might run Shopify and Klaviyo, and then Zero in the back office, and it's that simple. Then, as they grow and mature, they might need to graduate into an ERP or an ERP-like system. Then they need to maybe tack on, especially if they got their own warehouse, and they might need to tack on an OMS, a proper uh, OMS slash WMS platform. So there's these kind of design patterns as these brands grow from nothing to scale, and that's what both of us helps a lot of these businesses Mm -hmm. achieve. But one of the things that I saw is. These brands had built, in many cases, very rigid tech stacks. And by Mm -hmm. rigid, they have almost technical debt built in from day one. And what that means is that if they need to make pretty significant changes to their operational structure, to their org design, to all these different things, to the channel mix, to everything, they oftentimes the tech was actually holding them back because it wasn't built with scale in mind from day one and it wasn't built for omni-channel, or it was not built to be easy to adopt new channels quickly and efficiently and without a high cost. And and that really caused problems. And I'll give you one specific example, and I'd, I'd love your thoughts as a follow-on to this. So brands mm. th- that at the start of the pandemic that had owned and operated warehouses, so they did them themselves, and maybe they've got one, one local warehouse, they ship from there, they ship nationwide with all the national carriers, maybe they've got you know, deals with USPS and UPS and maybe FedEx and they, and they call it good, right? And they've got a carrier aggregator platform that plugs into their e-commerce platform that does all the decision making for them around which carrier that goes out with. It lodges the it lodges the consignment and, and it's hands off from there. The guy comes and picks up all the parcels, the woman comes and picks up all the parcels and it's kind of fire and forget really. But then when they needed to scale that Warehouse operation in particular, they couldn't because they had physical capacity limitations. Now, the brands that were already working with 3PL when that happened, it was usually not a problem because these – most 3PLs can flex and scale very rapidly. They have the concept of scale built in. They're catering to a lot of customers, not just one customer. So they can, and usually they got more than one warehouse, so they can distribute things out quicker and, and place them regionally. So the brands that were working with the 3PL already, it was much, much easier for them to flex and scale than the brands that were operating owned warehouses, just as one example. And so I'd love your thoughts on the kind of future planning and the kind of future flexibility these brands need to build at least into their thinking from day one.
1: Yeah, no, that's a good example. And I'll, I'll take that and and I'll do you, I'll do you one more, which I think is a good representation of what you're asking. So we have a client right now at the moment, they're purely a direct to consumer brand, very successful growing very quickly. So they three, they were with a 3PL. Actually, I'll say this, they launched like in pandemic. So but they started with a 3PL, a 3PL that's known for scale and flexibility. However, what they found is their business was scaling and a couple things started to happen. One is they expanded their direct to consumer channel, number one, so now they're on Amazon marketplace. And then now they're moving into uh, large retail, right? So this particular 3PL, while being very good at scaling pure D2C cookie cutter type brands, became very bad at being the right partner for this brand that is now developing beyond that, which is very narrow focused widget, only on a Shopify store, nothing real crazy. And so what did they have to do? They needed to find a different partner. And when they were looking at that for that new partner, what are they looking for? They're like, okay, how is our business likely to develop in the next two, three, four years? We need a partner that can handle this for three, at least two, three, four years with all of that development in mind. What does that mean? It means our Shopify store is getting bigger, but so are our SKUs. Oh, by the way, we want our unboxing experience to actually level up. So we not, now we're dealing with packaging, right? We're dealing with that. Oh, by the way, we need you to also be able to fulfill into large retail and not screw that up. Okay, cool. And oh, by the way, you also have to not screw up the Amazon shipments. So now that becomes, it's really important. Of course, price always matters. It's always a thing. But what matters even more is, can you be that partner as our business grows into what it's becoming, which very omni-channel, very diversified, et cetera?
0: And in that, it's multi-business model as well. So it's not just channels, but it's multi-business model. If you go from pure D2C or B2C to also establishing strategic wholesale channels, as you say, you're now moving from purely moving one or two packets per customer door to now we need to shift cartons, pallets, and containers into strategic retail or strategic wholesale, whatever that looks like for you as a brand, that's a very different proposition for somebody. Some, something like a 3PL, where they might only be structured to be able to s- ship single items or maybe up to carton sized to an end consumer, and they have no capacity to even uh, inboard or onboard containers. Uh, they, they don't have the ability to receive containers. Maybe they only have the ability to receive pallets, for example, and especially if that 3PL is early on in their own growth journey. And so I think what you rightly point out is there's really a mapping exercise that needs to be done. Okay, what does our growth map look like on current trajectories? Or even if we get a a solid bump at some point and we look to expand our business models and our channel mix, et cetera, maybe our partners of today will not be able to be our partners of tomorrow. But what I usually try to help these brands understand is, okay, if you've got an ERP today that is inflexible around location management, inventory management, it doesn't really have the concept of multi-location inventory. It doesn't really have the concept of being able to manage an owned warehouse plus third-party warehousing and distribution. If it's not easy to integrate with for these third-party partners, you really have massive constraints on your growth. If you have legacy systems that are are rigid and inflexible, then that means even down to the partner level that you will need to work with as you grow, you simply will not be able to do that quickly or easily or cheaply because your systems were not built with growth and scale in mind and flexibility in mind. And so whenever I go in to help a brand architect a new solution, a new stack, a new component of the stack, whatever it might be, I'm always trying to help them understand When we start thinking through the lens of Infiniscale, right? So instead Mm -hmm. of saying, okay, we're going to change this system three times over the next decade, no, let's put into place. And it usually means we're moving from on-prem legacy platforms, usually to SaaS platforms, which have Infiniscale in mind, and we're all connected via APIs instead, which gives us a lot more growth flexibility built in. A lot of times these brands don't even understand the concept of infinite scale and and they have almost they they have a fixed mindset around where their business is going to be in 5 years maybe just with some a little bit of upgrowth maybe 5% a year 10% a year but oftentimes that's not the case they need to be able to flex up and down really rapidly without it costing an arm and a leg and they've never really thought that far ahead
1: yeah and i think you know to bring it all the way back to your original point which was you know kind of the wartime peacetime, you know, generals. And if you haven't operated in at least an up and a down cycle, you haven't at least seen one of each, right? I think that it's difficult to appreciate what some of those things ultimately mean in the long run. And then, of course, you obviously sprinkle in whatever the most current variables which are always changing again there's so many things exist today we're talking about systems that just simply didn't exist 10 years ago regardless of the fact that we were in a you know peacetime versus a wartime so there's those things too but i think appreciating those types of things and having that mindset is one of the things we obviously with the scar tissue try to be very helpful with right because the other thing and most of what we do ultimately ends culminates in some sort of big strategic transaction a sale a big strategic growth partnership whatever and what we try to also help our founders understand if they don't already fully know it is this is also the way that counterparty on, on the other side of the table is going to be looking at things right when they look at your business and they say okay tell me about your tech stack and you tell them and the guy on the other side of the table who has the scar tissue goes. That's going to be a problem after about 20% more growth, don't you think? Or what happens if you guys stop being just US and you go and you're going to expand to Europe? What happens then? And then they see these roadblocks, and every roadblock becomes either a, a risk or a big capital expense or a something, which then makes that opportunity weaker, right? From the other side of the table. And you don't want that. You want your opportunity to be as strong as it can be so that ultimate culminate transaction is as positive for you as a committee.
0: Yeah. And, and that's what I think a lot of brands also don't understand, is, especially if they're small and, and success almost comes, I don't want to say the term luck because I, I don't really believe that there's luck, but they've set themselves up for the chance to win. They ultimately end up winning to a greater or lesser degree. And, and so then almost that winning almost becomes a surprise to them. And therefore, because they weren't expecting to win necessarily with high confidence then they weren't planning to win and so therefore mm-hmm. all of a sudden now what what you say what you said about that person doing the deal on the other side of the table i i just i think for them they're almost going well if this business didn't plan for increases and decreases in, in business effectively we're going to have to decrease the valuation because what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to come in and help them plan for growth we're going to have to help them build for growth so even if we even if it's a strategic MA or it's a strategic acquisition or P, pe comes in, in into the equation they're thinking to themselves what what if we want to double the enterprise value of this business in the next two years, say, for example, we can bring the capital to make that happen. We can bring the go-to-market now to make that happen. We can maybe open up new channels and opportunities for them, but there has to be a commensurate ability to digest that extra business on the back end. And to your point, I think internationalization in particular is something that I see as uniquely weak in American brands. And I say that with huge amounts of respect because. In in New Zealand or Australia or Mexico or almost any other and particularly European brands, they have the concept that we will not be able to operate in our domestic market forever if we want to truly have growth opportunities. There's a lot of American companies that they never need to do internationalization because there's so much opportunity in their homeland. They don't really ever have to think about going international. But almost everyone else in the world by default thinks internationally because their home market just isn't – it's just not big enough to support their growth aspirations. And so they're thinking about internationalization almost from day one. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a missed opportunity for many American businesses because they could significantly de-risk their business because very – it's very rare when the – yes, it's true. The saying saying is true that when America gets a sniffle, the the world gets a cold sort of thing. But Mm – A lot of American companies could massively de-risk their business by having at least some presence internationally in major markets because very rarely does every single market all around the world crash or rise at exactly the same time and at exactly the same pace. So just by having a couple of strategic international plays, even if it's just marketplace plays internationally and and, and that's all they do, they don't necessarily – fully localize their D2C website for all locales, but they they have strategic partnerships with local successful marketplaces. I think American brands are missing an opportunity here. What's your thought on that?
1: I think a lot of them are. I think when and how much that matters, I think is situation specific, to be frank. I think that like in any scenario, in any kind of decision tree, you're gonna have a priority hierarchy. I would argue there's very few situations where, if we're looking to help a, a company, that we're not looking at international expansion if it's not already there or more of it if it's there a little bit. The question is, where does it fall in the priority hierarchy? A lot of that is driven by, of course, opportunity and what the ease of access of the opportunity ultimately is. And as you well know, different products, different brands, the opportunity is different, right? It's not the same from one to the next. However, one thing I will say is that. In a world now that is increasingly borderless, communication is increasingly borderless, I think the opportunity to actually get your message to consumers in other markets, while of course understanding that cultures and styles are different, you can't just take your American approach and export it all everywhere. That to me makes that opportunity more accessible and bigger in general, let's say generally speaking, And so if you're not thinking about it, you're probably, that's a missed opportunity before you even have done anything. Simply thinking about it and looking at it is something you need to do, I'd say, no matter what. And then the question is, and we always run into these scenarios where, all right, do we blaze trail? Do we at least set the roadmap up? Or do we actually go out and start executing? Or do we leave it for the next, we'll call it the next owner. Is that something that we leave on the table, say, hey, at the very least, what we say, you want to go and lay the groundwork, whether that's legal structures or infrastructure or whatever, to say, all right, you may not want to pull the trigger on taking your products to to Europe, let's say, or UK, wherever, but you want to be able to explain how it would be done and what the opportunity is for your brand there if you have to at least be able to do that and that's where i think from a mindset standpoint Wigan we, we strongly encourage founders who don't do that to do that and again give it its appropriate place in the hierarchy of priorities but it's always on the list
0: and i like what the military does in terms of war gaming certain scenarios like they play it out right they say okay what if all of a sudden if what, what would happen if China you know attacked Taiwan and, and looked basically to occupy Taiwan what would happen if X did Y what would happen if, if this happened what would happen if an economy melted down over here what would happen if there was some sort of civil war over here what would and they play that out they say what would ha- what would our response and what would be required of us if these scenarios played out and I like to take a similar approach with brands and say look what if just what if your revenue doubled tomorrow? what would you be able to handle that as a business? or what if your, what if your number of shipments doubled tomorrow? would you would your systems and your processes and your people and your partnerships be able to scale that way? What happens if uh, revenue drops twenty percent tomorrow for, for, for some reason? What happens? If we play out all these different scenarios, what happens, what if we decided to take on an international channel through a marketplace? What what would that look, how quickly could we do that as a business and what would it cost us and what would it look like? And let's war game that out. And I think war gaming out specific scenarios that seem outlandish, I think the more outlandish the scenario, the better you stress test kind of your internal structures, your internal tech. You don't want to be totally insane, but you want to think of some extreme scenarios that could absolutely happen, could absolutely play out. And especially if there's an outside investor involved, they wanna see that you're planning for flexibility in your business and that you can truly be, because many brands say they're omnichannel and that they're omnichannel ready. And then I go in and I start asking them specific questions around specific scenarios and specific things that are happening in the business and trajectories and what some of their competitors might be doing that might force their hand in certain ways. And all of a sudden, I find that the better the questions you ask, the better it starts to help them illuminate their thinking and illuminate opportunities for them. So I find that asking better questions usually gets better answers.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and I think there are two points there that, that I'll key in on. I think one is – I think you're totally right. I think going through wargaming and that type of planning is is really important. It's hard for founders to do it. I think that it's hard to build that discipline in to to do those things, but we obviously we're always telling our clients, look, plan for success, right? Of course, and have contingency plans in case it doesn't work out. But planning for success is saying, all right, on the one hand, we have all of these initiatives that we're launching, right, to try to drive business, whatever, however much. Let's plan that it actually works, right? Let's plan that all these things that we think are great ideas that they work, that they're actually, they do what they're supposed to. So if they do, what does that look like? And how does that affect what we're doing in the company? How does that affect timing? How does it affect really everything? I think the other, in addition to the, hey, planning, plan for success and expect to be successful, is one of the things that's missing and from the founder world, again, we're primarily talking about businesses, say under hundred million of revenue, 50 million revenue is there's a real lack of, no one's got a board, like almost no one has an advisory board, an actual board. And you mentioned South call earlier. And one of the things that happens pretty quickly when we start working with a client through Southcall is, and we do this at GW partners too, is that we establish quarterly board meetings And a lot of these founders who are now essentially playing the role of CEO in the board meeting have to now think through. And if you've ever been through a proper quarterly board meeting, a lot of the kind of stuff you and I are talking about here gets discussed in those board meetings. And so just forcing that discipline and a lot of it, to be frank, is they've just never done it before. They never had to do it before. But what we find is the exercise becomes so valuable to them. They're like, okay, look. This was a little like going to the dentist, but I'm glad I did.
0: So true. Oh god, board meetings, man. It's so true. And and they may never have created a board pack before in their life. They, they right. may have they, they may not even know what a template of that looks like. They may not they may not know what the structure of a board meeting looks like. They may not understand what the general process of uh, of a board meeting looks like. They may not understand the types of things that a theoretical investor or M&A partner might ask. They don't they don't know they don't really understand structured corporate governance in that way because they're used to being the kingpin in the business that kind of every major decision just goes through them. Like, that, it's just that. they And they do it largely by the seat of their pants, their guts, their entrepreneurship, their their mental and emotional entrepreneurship genes kick in, and they try to make the best informed decision in the moment that they can that still keeps their business agile. And unfortunately, I think a lot of founders, when they start to reach scale, they view governance as purely a handbrake on their growth. What they don't see is the flip side of that. So yes, governance can bring certain constraints into the business, maybe where it never existed before. But on the flip side, you now in theory, have a pool of advisors that have seen much more and many different things than what you have. And so oftentimes, board advisors they're entrepreneurs themselves, so they've worked in bigger businesses themselves, and so therefore, they understand the founder's journey. They understand the entrepreneur's journey, so they're going to already have inbuilt empathy for where you're at in your founder's journey, and so the best boards are not micromanaging boards. They're not, they don't want to be there. No. They want no. to create an environment where the entrepreneur has a sandbox that allows them maximum flexibility without the potential to completely destroy the business and the process.
1: Yeah. And I think what we see a lot of too, and I'm I'm sure you've seen this, is there's certain methods and processes that work great to a point. But then if you want to get to that next level or two levels or three levels, you have to now start to bring in some things. More structure is usually part of it. More people, more voices is usually part of it. And hey, again, picking somewhat random numbers, but they tend. it's interesting how often we've seen, like from a revenue standpoint, where these things, these walls tend to get hit. You see it at 1 million, you see it at 5 million, you see it at 10 million, and then you see it usually about 25, 30 million. And then you see it again in kind of 75, 100 million. And usually to get up to that next layer, there's some things that have to fundamentally shift around how you run your business. We see it all the time and look great. Congratulations, what you did worked great to get you to $10 million of annual revenue. Now you wanna to get to 25, here's the secret though. You can't just do it the way you've always done and go from 10 to 25. And usually if they're, ta- if they're working with us, they're finding that, hey, I'm looking for some assistance here. And because I feel like I'm realizing, i putting myself in that founder seat, like I'm realizing it that I need to probably shift how my organization is structured and operates but I'd love to actually work with people who have seen it and done it and know what to do. Right. And that's again, where like a diverse board, if nothing else, like if anyone's listening, like, if, if they take nothing else away from this podcast, there's two pieces of advice I would give one, have a board, have it be diverse, right. And have it, have a just a wide breadth of backgrounds, experiences, ages, races, genders, all of it, right. Diverse board. And number two, if you want to sell your company at some point, if that's in your plans, always know or believe you know the 20 most likely candidates to buy your company. Wow, that's such a good advice. At any point, you should have a list. And if you don't know how to get a list, you need to work with people like us. If you know how to get a list, make contact with those people. Say, hey, just establish a relationship. You're not for sale. You're not. You're just saying, hey. I want to, and you build that rapport. There's those two things alone, founders, and they almost never do. They almost never have a board and they almost never have a clue who would want to buy their company. And I think those bigger companies
0: that are potentially, that, that would potentially view you as an acquisition target, in my experience, most of the time, those two leaders are more than willing to have a discussion. So if you, made, if you reached out to the CEO of the company, it would potentially acquire you. And you're very frank with them and you're very transparent. You say, look, you're almost where we hope to be someday, like where we don't consider ourselves a competitor of yours because you're like maybe 10 times our size or five times our size or whatever. So we we don't necessarily see ourselves as direct competitors with you, but we have aspirations of being somewhere around where you are today. And look, I think every company needs to have those aspirations. And I think it's perfectly reasonable to say, look, if five years down the track or 10 years down the track, we were to set ourselves up to be an acquisition target by someone like you, what would you be looking to see in a company like us that would make you uh, view us as an attractive acquisition target? What would we need to do internally to set ourselves on a path for positive M&A activity with a business like yours? And I, I find that, that senior founders are – especially in conferences and breakout sessions and in private moments, they're very willing to, to share because they don't feel threatened by you yet. Like You're not big enough to be right. a threat to them. So they're very – like if it was a direct competitor that was already at the level they're at, they're not gonna, they're not going to reveal their secret sauce. They're not going to have an open kimono. But to a smaller business that they don't perceive as a competitor in any way, shape, or form – they're pretty willing to have some pretty frank conversations. I've seen it happen on more than one occasion. And I think this is something that younger founders are really afraid. They think they're revealing their secret sauce to a bigger player if they have these kind of conversations. And I think that's just totally, utterly ridiculous. So I think this, and even when I go to conferences and I'm sitting around roundtables, I find that the peer-to-peer, merchant-to-merchant discussions are literally the best part of any good conference because peers will always open up to each other more than they will to a vendor, service provider, partner, whatever. They'll be maybe partly open kimono with partners, et cetera, but they don't want to be sold to. And as a result of that, they will be much more open with their peers and say, hey, this is what we're doing. We're running into this problem. Have you guys seen this? How have you dealt with this? So they're much more open. And and I think that brands need to avail themselves of every single opportunity for positive input to help grow their brand.
1: Yeah, to be frank, there's really no downside, right? What's the worst that can happen? They just ignore your reach out? Like, they okay, who cares, right? Yeah. You're like, if you're like, hey, listen, I'd love to chat with you sometime. I own this brand, and I just admire what you guys have done. I'd love to just chat and, and establish a, a connection. And like you said, I, I think people a lot of times don't understand how willing people are to have those discussions. But, but you just don't see people putting themselves out there like that. Um, very often, there's really, like I said, there's just no downside to it, really. I mean, very little potential.
0: And and to your point of establishing a strong, diverse board, oftentimes those conversations can potentially lead to that person either becoming or recommending a board advisor to you. They can say – but I, yes. I, I think there's this issue with founders – where it's very difficult for them to admit what they don't know. It's very difficult. Like you you don't want to be perceived, you have this fear, this irrational fear, especially when you're a young founder. And I know I went through this because I, I used to be a young founder many years ago. I didn't want to be perceived as someone who didn't have the answers. I didn't want to be perceived as a weak link in the chain. I didn't want to be perceived as someone who couldn't figure it out on my own. I didn't I I was the perception thing was like a big deal for me when I was a young founder. And mm-hmm. It's okay not to know everything. In fact, it creates trust. It creates a scenario where your teams don't feel like they have to say they know everything, or they don't have to pretend like they know everything, that they can ask questions, that they can be mentored, that they can be coached, that if the CEO or the founder is not willing to admit they don't know everything and be specific about what they don't know and where their weaknesses are, then that doesn't provide an environment where the, the team feels safe to admit that to themselves and to you. So I I feel like there's some psychological components here that need to be addressed in strategic consulting like what you provide. And I feel like Mm -hmm. maybe the mindset piece and maybe the heart set piece is even more important than the nuts and bolts operational pieces.
1: Yeah, I would say it's at least as important, if not more. And I think that we spend probably just as much time with our founders in conversations that are very much psychological in nature right they tend to have a bit there's a business context right even though there are plenty that are more just personal conversations but it's really look and we find that the founders honestly that are most willing to say i know what my shortcomings are i know what i do well and i know what i don't do well that's a really strong skill because the things you don't do well you're going to find other people or places to get those things done you're not going to do them yourself which is only going to make your business better because you want whoever's handling a given function or task to be the most appropriate best person for that function or task, right? And entrepreneurs that aren't willing to admit what they don't know or what their weaknesses are, so they struggle with that. And that's where you see that hubris or just that pride making their business weaker. Obviously, not to stereotype, but men tend to have a harder time with it than women. And but But in general, though, it's a pretty common thing where you find that. There's just that sometimes it's you can't even help it right because if you're if you have the dna of an entrepreneur you also have the dna usually of self-belief confidence i'm gonna figure this out and that's great and that's all the good stuff that got you to where you are but again the point of for example i hate to keep harping on it having a board is these are people who have knowledge and their incentive is nothing but to help you right they're not here they're not there to give you any kind of bs so, having those voices in the room, and a lot of times with founders, where they don't, if they don't want to look vulnerable or they don't want to look weaker to their employees, for example, which I know can be tough because you want to be a leader, a strong leader. You also, though, again, don't want to look like someone who can't admit when they're wrong, but it gives them a little bit of that protection too. Like they can have a closed door conversation with a group of board advisors or board members. And they can say in it okay look hey i gotta be honest guys i'm feeling i'm not feeling so good about a couple things here what do you guys think and having that conversation with a subordinate can maybe be harder so that's another reason to, to have those things and i think that's also why you see a lot of founders they like mastermind groups and things like that the only problem i see with those is I got to be honest, that feels there's a lot of just it's like a pissing contest within those a lot of those groups. It's just it's like a, it, everyone's just peacocking. No one's being real. A lot of times I say I, that's too probably absolute, but I'd say many times. And so I don't think you get out of those groups what you would get out of like a real kind of board or strategic advisory kind of relationship.
0: Yeah, and I think that founders have an unfair perception of not only boards but any sort of management structure that that is put in place around them. I think they have – I think maybe they think, look, I want to have the freedom and flexibility of a founder without too many shackles. But -hmm. I think to your point, what a really good board does is it surrounds this person with better people that can do the things that either – it's not just that they can't do, but the things that they don't like to do. So there are certain things mm-hmm. that a founder may have a skill in, but they don't freaking enjoy it. They don't love it. They, they're not passionate about it. They know that they need to do it because it's part of their growth journey of their business, and it's a box they have to tick. And maybe in the beginning, especially in the beginning, they don't necessarily have the resources to hire for those roles yet or whatever, so they wear multiple hats. But as they scale, that then provides the resources to backfill them in the areas that that they just don't like, that That they'd rather focus yeah. on these two or three things that they are super passionate about, and maybe it's their greatest strengths. And I find that a board, a good board, will help you as a founder or as a leader or as a CEO to be able to go all in on your strengths and mm-hmm. backfill your weaknesses, where you think, geez, if money was no object, and I love when boards go through these thought exercises with founders and leaders as they say, look. If money was not an issue and you had unlimited funding, what would you, what roles and tasks and things would you be engaged in this business if, if money was no object, if hiring, if we could find all the resources in terms of people that would be a perfect fit to do all the things you don't like to do? What would that look like? Right, And even if we can't do that today, let's roadmap a way for you to get there within the next two, three, four years. Let's at least play this out and see what that would look like. And so by removing the shackles mentally as a thought exercise and saying money, no object, resources and human resources, no object, what does your role in this business look like to you? And then let's roadmap a way to make that happen because we want our leaders. We want our founders to be doing their best work where they're most productive, most passionate, most driven, willing to do 20-hour days. We don't want them distracted from that passion by crap that they don't like doing even if they're skilled at doing it.
1: Totally, and, and I think that's, that's part of the journey of scaling too, right? When you're starting in your garage or your spare bedroom – Sometimes you have no other choice. But as you're scaling and your business, you've done all that, you've done that heavy lifting to get to the business to a point where now these things become not only even more important but also possible. right? It, it's such a key part of making the possibility become a reality and, and determining, hey, this is really important that we plan this and execute on it. Because when we do, and the founder, who's the lifeblood of, of this company, is spending their time doing the things they do best and that they're really good at. It's only going to be a virtuous cycle, right? It's only going to make the company more and more successful, right? And you're gonna and you're gonna be going to okay, cool. Now we're doing the same thing except with the next layer, right? It's not just the founder anymore. It's that jack of all trades supply chain guy or whatever now needs like okay, let's get it's him or her doing the things they're really good at, and let's get two or three people assisting them in other areas and then you just start to layer down the org that way as you scale up.
0: And how often do you run into a situation because I've seen this too where entrepreneurs are generally control freaks. They ha- they have to be. Like that that yeah. like they have to take a very strong view of what they're doing. They have to have a very strong opinion on a market. They have to have a very strong opinion generally about what they're capable of and what they can achieve. But as you say, when they scale, one of the hardest things is they realize, they might even know that there are certain things that they're doing that they're good at, they're competent at, but they hate. And But it's still, it's a control, it, it, it's a release of control factor, right? Mm-hmm. We're control freaks, we're wired to be control freaks. We have to, we wanna be able to control as many of the pieces on the chessboard as we can to stack the deck in our favor, to survive and thrive in our business. That's just hardwired into our entrepreneurial DNA. But the flip side of that is we're control freaks. And letting go control, even of things we hate doing, feels scary. It feels wrong. It feels like you're losing control of your business. How do you deal with that? How do you approach that scenario with a founder who really, they've got the resources, they're on the right growth trajectory, and the, the boss is still doing lots of things they hate, doing some things that they love, And they're really good at how do you help coach them through that process of relinquishing control as they scale?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I I think the the, I'd say the, the short answer is it depends, right? Because you have so many different flavors of founders, some that are holding on much tighter than others. The ones that are holding on a lot tighter than others, I'd say it's probably a bad analogy for people who do this for a living, but it's like diffusing a bomb, I think. You're basically saying, okay all right, let's not just go in there and rip all the wires out at once and just make everybody nervous. And maybe we accidentally blow ourselves up. Let's, let's go in and let's say, okay, let's take the blue wire. Pretty sure that's not going to do anything bad. That's going to feel good. Right now let's do the green wire. And then you're saying, Hey, and, and I think one of the things on, on our side, I would say that helps motivate is that we, we basically try to frame it up in, in the context of that strategic outcome, that transaction that we're shooting for here at the end. Okay, by the way, if you continue to control everything in the business, it's gonna materially harm valuation because there's a lot of risk in the business. There's a lot of obstacles to scaling in the business. If I were to sell the company tomorrow, and you pretty much control everything, you have a far less valuable company to the next guy. Trying to paint that picture and say, if you're able, if we're able to pull you out of these areas and you're not controlling them, there's actually quite a big reward for that when we get to the end of that rainbow. And I think that helps a lot, loosen up the grip a little bit.
0: So painting the picture, painting the future picture yes. and, and making it feel achievable if they do these things.
1: That's right. It's funny. And here's a shameless, cheesy plug for GW partners. There's a reason why if you go to our website, the first thing is you see a picture being painted. Like that's the background. Like it's like a time series kind of a thing. And that's a lot of it, right? A lot of this type of stuff is painting the picture and saying, all right, this is where we want to go. This is how we're going to get there, both from a 10,000 foot and a ground floor level, right? Let's and here's, the, here's why we want to go where it is we're saying we want to go. Why do we want to go there? Let's have good reasons for why going to that place makes a lot of sense, right? And then how do we get there? And I think that, again, circles all the way back to the kind of the board comment, the strategic plan. A lot of founders, are, are they're just going 100 miles an hour. They're not taking a lot of time to do a ton of strategic planning. Right? It's a lot of real-time battlefield, bullets flying, making decisions, et cetera, not maybe taking the time to step back and really paint that picture of where do they want to go? Where do they want to go in the next quarter, the next year, the next two years, and how are we going to get there? And I think that exercise we have found is not only highly valuable to the founder, but it's almost like you're giving them some oxygen they didn't know they needed. Like the amount – like they usually are so energized by that activity, like when they're forced to go through it and they have someone there to lead them through, that it makes them even more excited about their company than they've ever been.
0: So if I had to boil that down to almost one sentence, it would be we're trying to create an environment where you can respond instead of react. We, we want you to move out of a reactive mode into a response mm-hmm. mode, and there are certain steps we're going to have to take as a business to put you in a position to, to do that and be that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, look, again, just my honest advice to any founder is you got to take the time for it and you got to surround yourself with people to help you do it. Right. And I, I, it's always worth it to me. It's hard. I know when you're a busy founder and you're cranking and maybe you have a family or maybe you're trying to do a bunch of stuff and taking the time out to do real planning feels like it's like, I just don't even have the time for it. A lot of people feel that way, but uh, it's always worth the time.
0: And in terms of finding beyond diversity, what are some of the things you look for when you're helping a founder or a leader establish an, either an ad, just a general advisory board or like a proper yeah. formal board structure? One of the things that I find, and I've been part of boards before, what I find is that oftentimes... The people that are on those boards, they don't necessarily have any more experience than the founders. So they're all learning from almost the same baseline point, and therefore they can't – it's difficult for them to get out of their own way because they don't have a guide. They don't have a coach. They don't have someone that they can look up to that's been there that can help them build the structure and the process around leadership and governance Mm -hmm. that they they know works. They know to tried, true, tested – experience situations where they can build that board and create governance structures and create processes that will create a scenario where the business is much more likely to see success than not. But I, I oftentimes see boards that, that have a similar experience level and, th- and they have similar knowledge and capability. And to, to your diverse, diversity point, I think that includes not just you know, colors and, and race and gender, all these socioeconomic backgrounds. I think it's also business experience needs to be diverse too, meaning that, they, that you, know, yeah. you might have some people that have five years of experience. You might have some people that have 10 years of experience. You might have some people that have 30 years of experience. I think – and with different scales of businesses too, I think that diversity has to take all shapes and forms as much as possible because if you're all at the same level, then it's like the blind leading the blind, right?
1: Yeah, I agree. I think that would be a poorly constructed board, what you just described. And I do agree. I think from a diversity standpoint, the business experience diversity is the single most important point of diversity. I think that, I think having, if I were to call it design the the perfect board, right, it would include, I think, at least to three generations, right, represented. I think it would have People who have spent most of their career in larger corporate settings and people who are entrepreneurs, both. And I would say you absolutely want people who have been part of a scaling journey similar to where you are in yours, right? So I think those to me would be almost like the three must haves, right? Right there. And then once you have those, the rest is helpful and important, but. Is just going to increase the potential viewpoints because that's really what you want. You want viewpoints that are different, but valuable, right? They're relevant. They're different, but they're relevant. And that's where you can really benefit, right? Makes absolute
0: sense. Now, as we come down to the close of our time together, this has been an amazing session. I've learned a ton. So I really appreciate you taking your time with me today. This is I've been doing this for a very long time, and there was a whole bunch in here that was educational for me. So I can only imagine that people are maybe earlier in their journey than I am, will probably find this even more valuable and relevant to them. But I always like to finish off with these conversations where I turn the microphone over to my guests, let them ask me one question, any question they like, be personal or professional. So Jason Somerville, what is your question for me today, my friend?
1: Ooh, what's my question for you? I would say if you were forced to sum up the most important lesson you've learned in your business career so far, what would that one bullet point lesson be? The most important thing you've learned about business?
0: Empathy born out of travel is what I would say. Because I think that I am the person that I am today because I have seen the world through so many lenses. Grew up a California boy, moved to New Zealand, lived there almost 30 years, worked across New Zealand and Australia heavily, now moved to Mexico, done lots of travel to other countries in between. My wife's Asian, so I've got a multicultural relationship, have friends from every color and mix of personality every background, every socioeconomic level. I I think empathy is super underrated in business, both for internal staff and for customer. I think empathy is just so underrated. And if you want to relate to your customer groups, if you want to relate to your teams, if you you want to create an environment that feels safe for your team to do their best work, but you can't see the world through their eyes, then you're going to struggle. And honestly, I genuinely believe, and this is no slight against America, if I had stayed in California in my hometown, never left, never was forced into uncomfortable experiences with people that, that are look totally different to me and have different backgrounds to me, I would be a worse business person today for it. And I genuinely think that the travel that I've done and the living, living out of a backpack for three months traveling around Australia, for example, with three German friends – just all these little experiences that forced me out of my comfort zone into experiences that I'd never had before and had to figure it out on the fly. That has built a resiliency in me and an empathy in me that I don't think I could have achieved any other way.
1: Yeah, I like that. Yeah. And I think it's funny because I think America, we're especially guilty of, especially in business, right? We're just always go head down. It's all about ambition. Let's grow this thing. Let's kill. Let's crush. And I think actually, if we all took a little more time to know our customers, know our partners, know our staff a little better, I think ironically, we actually, you still serve that big capitalistic purpose. So you actually get the double win. I think one, you get a much better human experience throughout your life journey. Two, I think it actually probably makes you better at at your job. So I like that.
0: 100%. 100% agree. 100% agree. Jace, this is amazing. Really appreciate your time. How do you like people to get a hold of you if if they want to have a chat about – a deeper chat about some of the things we've discussed today? Do you like people to reach out to you on LinkedIn? Go to your website? How do you like people to find you?
1: LinkedIn's great. You can find me there. My name is sometimes misspelled. Often it's spelled like the season is the way people try to spell it, but it's actually S-O-M. Or website, we're actually at gw.partners, so it's not a .com, it's a .partners. And then, yeah, for your listeners, they can always email me directly, jason at gw.partners.
0: Wow, amazing. I'll put all those links into the show notes. Super appreciate your time today, Jason. Can't wait to have another conversation soon. If you'd like to get mentored by Jason for free, head over to greenwoodconsulting.net, scroll to the bottom of the page, and click Get Mentored by Jason.